This copyrighted podcast is presented by the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council. The opinions and views shared by those of non-paid guests on the business of blueberries are those of our guests and do not represent the views, positions, or policies of the USHBC. The blueberry industry is like no other, passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the management, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. Well, welcome back to another episode of The Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. Now, the past couple of years, we've invited back Fall Creek co-CEO Court Brazelton to give us a short state of the industry episode. These have always been very popular, and I think this one's going to be even better because joining me is not only Court, but also co-CEO Oscar Vargas. In September 2020, Fall Creek announced that Court and Oscar would be assuming the role of co-CEOs. Today, we'll be talking about how things have gone since the current state of the blueberry industry, the current state of genetics, their Sequoia platform, their support for the USHBC's leadership development program, and I'm sure much, much more. So, Court and Oscar, thank you for joining me on the business of blueberries. What's up, Casey? True pleasure. Now, Oscar, the audience has heard about Court's background on previous episodes of the podcast, but I think they'd be most interested in you sharing a little bit about yourself and what led you to your current position with Fall Creek. So I was born in Barcelona in Spain and uh, came to the U.S. for the first time when I was uh, 17 to um, a small town with a big name called Arkansas City, Arkansas, where I raised motocross. Finished that, went to school down in Florida and... I started in the produce industry in a big uh, banana company called Chiquita. Um, I stayed there for 15, 20 years, then went back to Europe and got my first introduction into blueberries over in Morocco, uh, where we got some of the first plantations of blueberries there. And they were Fall Creek plants. So that's how we first came in touch. I took some study abroad. As I said, I went into telecom for a few years until I came across court again. And, and the rest is history. Great to have you on the show and uh, look forward to digging in more on what you do there with Court at Fall Creek. But Court, as you know, I always appreciate your perspective and industry insights, you know, the energy you bring to this show. But for those that need a refresher, you know, how would you describe Fall Creek to someone new? So Fall Creek turns um, 45 this year as a company. The company was founded in 1978 by um, my parents, Dave and Barb Brazelton. Uh, over the years, they brought in other partners. And then about 15 years ago, the company's ownership was consolidated again, and we decided to professionalize the company and start focusing on things like having management and having eventually a board of directors and trying to operate like a more professional company. And that came on the heels of a decision to choose one path over another. We had two options during the financial crisis of 2008 and nine when we needed to decide who we were going to be as a company. Option one was stay here and do more stuff, more crops or more things. And option two was do what we're passionate about, blueberry plants, blueberry genetics, and serving growers and doing it in more places. That's been a pretty wild ride. We actually thought that was the better path because we thought it was easier. I'm not convinced in retrospect that was actually the easier path, but it's one we took because we, we love operating in the US. We also love the world and love growers all around the world. And frankly, there's nothing like working with farmers in different parts of the world because they all have more in common than different. We all do. 
so that's been really rewarding. It's uh, not been without its challenges. Today, we operate in nine countries around the world and provide a large portion of the blueberry plant material. We are a service provider to many breeding programs, providing essentially a manufacturing service to them and are happy to continue growing that business to grow plants for lots of breeding programs. We're a big believer that best genetics don't come from one place, they come from lots of places. And then on the genetic side, we're also a breeding organization and bring those products to market as well. So we're a nursery, we're a breeding company, and we're, we serve growers. So our, our slogan is we breed, we grow, we serve. Our mission is to build a world with better blueberries through exceptional plants, relationships, innovation, and customer success. And our values are humility, integrity, passion, and excellence. I know that sounds super corporate, but those are very real things. We started as a family business. And we are now a professional company that is owned by a family. And those are different things. When Oscar joined the company, I'm going to dovetail this with Oscar here. When Oscar was trying to decide if he was going to join the company, we were sitting in a parking lot because at the time he was looking at taking the job of COO. And he said, you know, is this a family business or is this a company, a professional company owned by a family? I said, I don't know if we're there yet, but we need to be the latter. And Oscar has played a pivotal role in helping us get there. So I guess that's a good segue then into, you know, Oscar's role as a co-CEO and how that conversation has actually translated into today, you know, the reality of, of having the two of you working together. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that co-CEO relationship, uh, that working relationship between the two of you. I imagine it's a lot of dividing and conquering. So maybe you guys could just kind of provide some clarity on, on how that works. Yeah, I'll, I'll start and, and let Cor get his perspective in. First of all, I'll say it's a lot of fun. We, we have fun together. I, I think we're great partners. And gosh, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, I said before, I'm father of four and, and the last two are twins. And before they were born, we were talking to a friend who had twins. Her twins were about six, seven years old. And what she said to me and to my wife then was, you know, one of the great things about being twins is that you're never alone. And... <laughs> Kurt and I are not twins, but they're certainly this role. If you're leading a company, you're there, Casey. I always have somebody to turn to and appreciate not being that solo leader, but somebody that I can bounce ideas with and he can do the same with me. And we work together well. We complement each other. And hopefully uh, by the power of two, we can get more done in service of the blueberry industry. Yeah. I think that's really helpful context, I think, for this audience, just as we get into some of this uh, more specific conversation on genetics, you know, the history of your company with genetics, but genetics generally, just what's happening in the industry right now, you know, really fascinating to kind of hear how this company, you know, has evolved. And I think, you know, that could help us just kind of take a look now from each of your perspectives, that kind of state of the blueberry genetics Court, maybe we can start with you. Is, is there something that you want to point to that stands out this year in the area of blueberry genetics? And, and of course, we can spend a little time talking about how we got here. But let me jump in first, Casey, and then I'll let Court continue and, and dive deeper. I think the blueberry industry is like any crop or industry or commodity, if you want, moving from the supply phase, actually getting produce out there to quality, to eventual segmentation. I think that the 52-week supply is now a reality. We are now in, in a position where there are going to be 
uh, multiple sources supplying any given window. And, you know, that comes from the appearance of the southern high buoys, the, the low chill, the zero chill, and, and how that now all the valleys have been filled. So we, we will soon be, or probably are already transitioning to the quality phase. And the good news on that is that better quality leads to more satisfied consumers who not only try the product now that it's available, but they are happy with their experience and they come back and they eat again and they stay in the category. And that is just a virtuous circle in terms of growing demand. It also means that uh, the lower quality product will need to be replaced. And I think that not just Fall Creek, but many other breeders are advancing very rapidly in releasing new generations and better varieties as we're just starting in the genetic development of this 105-year-old industry. Love it. Well, Casey, I'll try to answer your question and I'm going to start in a place where it sounds like I'm not answering it, but I promise I'll get there. So if I zoom out for a minute, we just talked about being a family company and thinking long-term. Well, let's, let's think about the next 30 years, right? You know, depending on how long you're going to be around on this earth, that's somewhere between a third to half of a lifetime based on the regular human life expectancy. Well, in 30 years, we're going to add a couple billion people to this earth and ever more of those people are going to be living in cities. They'll be more urban and more distant from where their food comes than ever. And in the meantime, for that to be a healthy future, they need to have healthier diets. We have a phenomenal opportunity in blueberries to become one of the top five produce items, if not the number one produce item in that 30-year period. So because genetics play a role into this, I am going to zoom in, but what are the things that, and this is a current Fall Creek philosophical hypothesis. What are the four things that need to happen for us to realize that potential as an industry? We have to improve the quality and the consistency of the product because even though we're going to add all these people, we're going to have substantial shortages of people to do this type of work globally. Today, it's in the US or Chile or Western Europe. Mexico is already getting short of labor. Peru is starting to have labor issues. South Africa will sooner than later. So the full mechanization of this crop is critical for the future. The next one is the whole movement to clean systems. So that's clean plants, clean nursery, clean genetics, clean farms. That is for phytosanitary health for plants. That is for food safety. And that is the environment. And that's a systems approach to how we do this, which sounds kind of esoteric. But if you think about how it applies to your business, it's usually pretty easy to think of what that means. You know, for us, it means we got to deliver clean plants for example, in a more environmentally sound way. And then the last one is the acceleration of the adoption of new technology to increase yield, reduce costs, and improve quality. So this is the dovetail to the next thing that gets us to the genetics. I don't envision a future in the next 30 years where our food doesn't come from farmers. And a blueberry farmer needs three things to be profitable, successful, survive, and be able to invest in the future. And there are three things that impact their success more than anything else. Their yield, their harvest cost, and their quality vis-a-vis -vis the price they get for the fruit. Price is influenced increasingly by quality. Quality increasingly influences price as well. Those are the big three. So what is the role of genetics there more than ever? This year, in recent years and looking forward, number one, we are going to continue to see genetics innovations that substantially impact yield dynamics. We are going to see yields continue to increase. 
last year's IBO report that we'll probably talk about this some other time that Colin and Matt and team and I did at the IBO last year indicated that of recent growth in global volume, 40% of that was not from new plantings, but yield increases. So it's getting more competitive, but yield increases are getting more important and genetics play a critical role there. So if varieties come out that don't have uniquely competitive yields, they shouldn't be out. The next one is harvest cost. Now this breaks down by chill level. In high chill, we are probably as an industry gonna have the first breakthrough. This is a major focus at Fall Creek. We've completely repurposed our focus in mid and high chill for machine harvest fresh. And by machine harvest fresh, I don't mean I picked it with a machine because I didn't have labor and I didn't get rejections, so I won. That's not a win because that doesn't mean that the product in front of the consumer was such that they're going to keep coming back to buy more. The vision is to machine harvest that fruit in the summer, be able to store it for extended periods and deliver exceptional quality fruit for many, many weeks after that machine harvesting and packing. So that's an opportunity in the high chill and that's a target. It's a target we have. Anyone breeding mid and high chill should be thinking this way in our humble opinion. You get down to low chill and zero chill, those are going to take a little bit longer to fully mechanize. There's a lot of noise in that space, but it's mainly just noise. This juncture, the physiology of the plants are a little more complicated. You know, you have different stages happening at the same plant, so it's a little tougher. But uh, we will need to get there as well in low and zero chill on the harvest side. In the short and medium term, the opportunity in low and zero chill is to substantially increase harvester efficiency, the efficiency of pickers. Oscar and I were both just recently on a trip in Latin America and visiting a grower. There's saw a field that had one variety. A picker would pick 30 kilos a day. Next to it's a field of a newer variety. That same picker picks 90 kilos in a seven-hour workday. That's a big distinction. And at a time when labor is getting short, that's important. And the last one is as much as we beat this over the head all the time, it is quality and consistency. Bringing a new level of quality and consistency and those who have that quality and consistency are going to get the POs. Now, I don't know about the word premium anymore and what premium is or is not. To me, I think a lot of the time a premium is having great customers, great POs, confidence that you can move ever-growing volumes and that if you're a grower, you can be part of that type of program that can give you a sustainable cash flow back to your business so you can keep investing in the future. We're going to have to come back to that court. I want to talk about your theory on premium. So, uh, but before we do, let's take a quick break here for our crop report. As listeners heard last week, the Florida harvest is coming online and we still have reports coming from Mexico, Chile, and Peru. So here once again is your blueberry crop report. It's time for your blueberry crop report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry growing areas. Today, you'll hear from Mario Ramirez in Mexico and Luis Vegas in Peru. This was recorded on March 1st, 2023. Hi everyone, here Mario with the Mexican Blueberries Report for week number 8 of 2023. During the 8th week, Mexico exported a total of 5,700,000 pounds of fresh blueberries to all the world. From this volume, 200,000 pounds goes to Europe and Asia. And another 5,500,000 pounds was exported to the United States. 18% of the total volume exported was organic blueberries. It is around 1 million pounds. Respecting previous week, the volume growth 9%. And in frozen blueberries, Mexico exported 45,000 pounds, around four times the volume exported previous week. And it represents only 2% of the total United States frozen blueberries exportations for week number eight. 
The total volume exported for the season is 60 million 300,000 pounds. The production still remains in center Mexico, mainly in Michoacán and Jalisco. That's all in my report. Thank you very much and see you next week. Hello, this is Luis with a prop report from Peru up until the end of week eight, which is the week ending on February 26th. Up until the end of week eight of season 2022-2023, Peru has shipped a total of 618 million pounds of fresh blueberries worldwide. From this total volume, 53% has been shipped to the US, 31% to Europe, 13% to China, and 2% to other destinations. Also, from the total volume shipped, 12% have been organics. So we are expecting this season to come to an end by uh, the end of April, with volumes that will be uh, reducing gradually week by week. And uh, the following season will start in May, with uh, also a really small volumes that will start increasing gradually until we reach our peak uh, of the season that happens in October, just to give you a general picture of our shipments. Regarding the volumes shipped during week eight specifically, uh, well, uh, Peru shipped a total of 2.4 million pounds. 70% of this volume has been shipped to the US with approximately 1.6 million pounds which are expected to arrive in the U.S. market during uh, the third and fourth week of March. 25% of the volume shipped during week eight has been sent to Europe, 1% uh, to China, and 5% to other destinations, including Bahrain, Brazil, Canada, Colombia, Costa Rica, Dubai, El Salvador, Guatemala, India, Maldives Islands, Panama, Thailand, and Uruguay. So that's a report from Peru. Thank you. Well, thanks so much to our busy growers and colleagues who take time to participate in these reports. As a reminder, you can go to the new USHBC website where you'll find our data and insight center to see more data of what's happening in the blueberry industry, including USDA shipping price and movement, retail category performance, Nielsen monthly retail sales report, and much, much more. Make sure you go check it out, ushbc.org forward slash data. All right, Court, I'm going to challenge you a little bit on your theory there with, with there not being a premium in blueberries because it seems like genetics are creating a tier structure. It's not a marketed tier structure, but it's tiered pricing that we're getting based on genetics. And I think it could be related to the supplier in the case of the marketer, but, but really I think it's about the genetics. So you're going to have to unpack that for me a little bit because you know it's my sense of what I've been specifically hearing this year that there's tiered pricing out there depending on what genetics that particular marketer is offering that retailer. Oh, th there's no question. So I'll touch some of this and, and I'll, I'll let Oscar take some of this too. But um, when I say I'm not so sure about premium, I'm not talking about today. Today, one of the biggest interesting dynamics in North American blueberries in the market in North America is now like what's happened in the UK, like what's happened in some of the Western European markets. There is a premium category. In some cases, there are new SKUs at retail that is built around genetics, great post-harvest, great supply chains, right marketing programs, et cetera. And we know the Driscoll Swedish Batch has done a phenomenal job 
of developing this space a bit. To call out an example, Family Tree Farms, done some great work here. Nature Ripe, doing some good work. This is everybody's job to create this space. Sequoia is part of an effort to try to do that. That's my only comment I'm going to make on Sequoia. I'll leave the rest for Oscar. But um, that's absolutely part of the effort. But is the premium supply based on today's norms of what that word means grows, it becomes a bit more normal. Premiums exist to incentivize a market to respond to the stimulus of premium prices. So what I mean by that is when I think about this long term, 10 years, 15 years, the horizon a farmer, especially a multi-generational farmer needs to be thinking about, they shouldn't just be thinking about chasing premiums. Premiums today help you pay for your costs in updating your technology, your genetics, all those things. But what we really want in the long term is to grow a grower's ability to build critical mass in their business and have really consistent returns that are predictable. Another way to say it is, would you rather have a premium price on one pallet or would you rather have good prices on a hundred pallets? That's what I mean by that. And I also don't think you, you have Pepe Gomez on here too. I'll throw this in. And something I like about what he said, Pepe from Camposol, is you know what? Everybody deserves to eat healthy. And so we also need to get to a place where people, everybody can have access to blueberries and they're not viewed as a fancy, expensive things, but growers got to make money. Okay. But that, that's what I'm saying, Court. There's room for both in that future. I really wonder 15 years from now, if we're not still talking about something even more premium than today's premium. And that's what I'm saying that is interesting about genetics. Like I always say for people I run into that aren't in this business that, you know, if you like the blueberries you're eating today, just wait five years from now. Because I wonder the evolution, and, and I'm just pushing against your vision here a little bit on, on where you think this might plateau, but isn't it plausible that the premium of today is facing a super premium of tomorrow? Because you do still want the 100 pallets of good or what was formerly premium, while you're still working on this super premium category that is something that... I'm not sure we know yet. And I don't, I'm, not, I'm not even saying I understand what I'm saying, right? Let's be honest. I think Casey goes back to, you know, the evolution of the crop. First, it was about getting 52-week supply. Then it was about getting better quality out on the stores. Then it will be about segmentation of the offer. And that, by the way, that, that segmentation might, you know, today is conventional and organic. It is maybe Jumbo's or Swedish Batch. You might get... Breakfast occasions, snacks. Court and I sometimes we would walk through these fairs and we would walk through, see the potato guys or the carrot guys, and we would say, "Man, man, blueberries are so cool. How how boring is that, right?" But then think about it. We had this uh, a Dutch guy we were talking to, great consultant, and had this insight. Well, the carrot category is actually much further ahead than you guys in blueberries. You get the traditional carrot, you get the baby carrots, you get the sliced and the diced and all kinds of different carrots for different occasions. We're far from that in blueberries. And the advantage is still comes back a, a bit to genetics. That's what's so exciting about blueberries, right? That the flavor profile, all these nuances that get, you know, tweaked and adjusted and like there's still that, that unknown that blueberries can come forward with that can perform in ways that people haven't expected. I, I remember getting asked when we were working with some of the issues we're facing going into China, if we thought we could grow a red blueberry because of their interest in the color red. The answer is yes. Yeah. 
And so it becomes really fascinating to think what more is different about blueberries than carrots and almonds and, and where companies like yours are intending to take it. We're only scratching the surface of the opportunity. We tend to be pretty open on sharing our strategy with the industry. You know, we, we recommend our competitors do what we're doing too, and maybe they will do things we're missing and we look forward to learning from them. But there are quite a few traits that are clearly available that could get driven into this crop that are pretty exciting. And no, I'm not going to tell you what they are because it's for us to work on and others to work on. But there's some pretty exciting potential out there. Many of these are going to take a long game. There's a lot of developments on the molecular and genomic side that are going to help accelerate this. There's a handful of companies that are pretty focused on those tools and their integration together with the science and the art of breeding. That's pretty exciting. We are growing our R&D investments at a rate of 150% a year. We are making disproportionate investments in this because we believe there's big opportunities, but we need to go bigger and faster. We're placing big bets and hopefully others are too. We're big believers. I want to say something and I think the opportunity in front of us, particularly in the US industry, is just there's great things coming, but there are great things here now that are not in the ground. And the U.S. industry, just like Chile, were the first ones to get the iPhone. But because they were the first ones to get the iPhone, they continue with the iPhone all along and they haven't upgraded to the new iPhones that are out there. We were the first ones to plant those varieties, but those genetics still in the ground. And now they become the oldest genetics that are out there. And there's a tremendous opportunity for the home season to be the best fruit that's out in the retail shelf. And, and when you say that, you know, we have, you know, northern and southern regions. So I would want to dig a little into, you know, where that spend has been in the R&D on the northern. Sure. The, the oldest plantings are northerns because southerns came later on, right? So the, the biggest opportunity to upgrade in my mind is in, in northern highbush. Unequivocally. And there's material out now. And, and I think you know, um, this is not new news, but the risk of, of trying the new against the old is quite significant. And that's where it gets into the complexity of place. There are places where new genetics have been trialed long enough to have high confidence in their adaptability. And then there are places where we need to answer questions still. So in those scenarios, and using the, we're in the Fall Creek hat, do we recommend a grower start putting in commercial plantings yet? No. But if you're not trialing and you're not looking at lots of things, not one company, all the sources you can get, and I think we've talked about this before, get it in your field, make the noise, say, I want to be trialing all these things, and I want to pay attention to them. Because you get into season when you got to make your money in a short period of time, it is easy to not pay attention to that trial site that you have on your farm. Expanding trialing with our customers is a critical part of our plan for the future because it's one of the only ways to continue reducing the risk of adopting new genetics because it is not without risk, especially in high chill. It's capital intensive and the rate of return is slower. Well, and that's, I guess I was going to ask is how slow does that have to be in the future? It'll speed up. How fast? We don't envision in the medium term getting to a place where a high chill planting has the same yield curve in the first three years as a low or zero chill planting, period. That being said, we can get year three 
in that high chill to start looking more a bit like year two in low and zero chill at some point. And we can also get to a place where year six to 10 have a higher per plant yield than low and zero chill. And that should never be underestimated. We can grow yield on high chill in ways that no one else can. We just got to get it dialed in. We're excited about it. Well, I want to be excited about it because I, I, I think the, the windows are changing on how we're marketing fruit today in terms of you know, when those peaks and valleys have been both historically and now. And so what we're going to run into, we're already starting to see it, as you know, is that it's lower supply in the summer months. The fruit is not going to be there. And if you're experiencing a typical 15 million pounds a week, and then you spike the 30 and the audience takes it, but then in June and July, we don't have 30 anymore, you know, therein lies the rub. And your market wants what it wants. They want to market 30 million pounds a week. Anyway, I'm, I'm throwing these numbers in there, but the idea is that that's where this opportunity lies that we're, we need to get on top of because before we know it, you don't have the supply. And then consumers are facing what they used to face in a counter seasonal situation in the US. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic, but I, I appreciate you guys sharing a little more on the Northern high bush development, because I think there, therein lies that rub. And I know we don't have a lot more time together, um, but I feel like we missed this chance of talking about Sequoia because, you know, as I was participating this year at USHBC in the IFPA show, the new show, not far from us was this Sequoia booth. And I thought, you know, we could talk a little bit about what the heck you guys are doing there with this Sequoia thing down the hall from us. And, you know, I know people know it, you know, so obviously people in the industry know Sequoia, but some people don't. And, you know, those are the questions I get, you know, what's the difference between Fall Creek and Sequoia? Is it the same thing? Are they different? So unless you go into that booth, you may not understand what Fall Creek's up to with this Sequoia program. And so that's why I wanted to make sure we took an opportunity here to, to let you guys explain what's the difference between what you're doing at Fall Creek and what you're doing at Sequoia. And what is Sequoia? We were coming up with new genetics in our breeding program, and we wanted to give them an opportunity to see what they can do. And basically, Sequoia has become a distribution channel for our genetics. You know, I, I have to give big kudos to the Sequoia team. I think they're doing a great job on taking these great Fall Creek genetics and generating pool for them from retail through their members and their growers. But it is a different business than Fall Creek is. Now, Fall Creek is about breed, grow, serve. We are about breeding better varieties that meet all the added attributes that the court talked about just a few minutes ago. Uh, it is about growing these exceptional plants and, and serving them to the growing industry. That's what Fall Creek is about. Sequoia is about fruit pool and fruit supply through its memberships and its growers. So that's, that's why we keep it distant from Pocri to, to an extent, because it's a different part of the business. I have to admit that internally and, and to some extent externally, it's generated a slight identity crisis because the Fall Creek is not about the selected few, it's about serving the industry. And that's where, where we want to mark the difference. It's just five genotypes of Fall Creek genetics that are commercialized through that channel. Everything else is not. And, and there's a lot more to Fall Creek than Sequoia. I guess that's what I would say. 
Yeah. I think that was kind of my, they ask here is just to try to understand that, you know, it seems to be a standalone brand. I, I of course recognize it as a standalone brand, but you've got all these genetics, you know, and, and what is it that makes that Sequoia brand differentiate itself from other Fall Creek initiatives? So I think that that's helpful, I think, for people to hear and understand. There's a lot of different things going on there. I mean, on a, one of the ways that we've worked internally to help make sense on the Fall Creek side of how to think about sequoias. Sequoia increasingly is organized like a, it's a unique, but it's like a customer and a licensee for Fall Creek. We have lots of customers and licensees. It, it's a little unique because we happen to own this one, but um, it's a very different business. The other interesting thing that, that's gone on is as that program moves ahead, it's moving way past abilities that Fall Creek traditionally would have. Now, there's a big focus on creating consistency and quality. There's a big focus in there on creating a process by which that can be recognized. Eventually, some additional branding, that sort of work. There's a lot of really good companies that are members in this program that are deeply committed to it. And that's kind of the secret sauce. Sequoia gets a lot of credit for things. It's actually the members that make it special. There's a lot of really good companies that are good growers, good marketers, and good people that are in the middle of this and they've bought in onto the concept and then they're working hard on it. So it's just an amalgamation of people trying to do good work together. And as we stated before, done well to oversimplify it. This, what we'll call the premium category today or this specialty category, genetics are important. How it's marketed is important. Quality control is important. That needs to come from multiple places and Sequoia is vying to be one of those sources of supply. This has been a, a fantastic conversation. Uh, hopefully our audience has learned a lot. Um, but before we let you go, Court and Oscar, you know, one of the things that Fall Creek has done for our program at USHBC is invested. You know, as a breeding company, you're not a part of the assessment base. And over the last year, we've developed a leadership program at the USHBC to try and develop, you know, not not unlike genetics, actually, right? We're, we're investing into a future of leaders and really developed a rather robust program in year one, thanks to our vice president, Amanda Griffith, and the work she's done to pull that program together. But uh, but what you've done is you've put some fuel in that gas tank for us in helping us, you know, make sure that this is a, a robust program of development. So I just wanted to take a moment here to acknowledge this investment by Fall Creek over three years, you know, providing us with you know, almost a quarter million dollars to really invest in this future and give you a little opportunity to talk about why that was important to Fall Creek and the value that it brings back to you as a company. Wow. So um, a few things. One, I think any company like Fall Creek that doesn't have the opportunity to pay assessments as growers do, who are here to serve this industry or that benefit from participation in this industry need to be looking for opportunities to do their part. That's number one. So when this opportunity came up, we saw an opportunity to do more in alignment with how we feel we should be better serving the industry. The next one is, you know, look at the podcast we just had and all the things that need to happen in the future for the industry to realize its potential and, and all the growers and companies and families involved in this business to be successful. What do we all need? No matter what we need, great leadership. And leadership is developed. It's cultivated. And the fact that the USHBC wanted to take the time to develop a program like this that is oriented towards developing future leaders in the industry was a beautiful thing. We need to look for more opportunities to do that. So in advance, thanks to the other companies who want to host their tours or their visits or be part of that learning or encourage their people, especially early career people 
to go take a look at this program and participate. I think you guys are doing a great job. Oscar and I are really proud to be part of this support network. And um, we're grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to be involved. Well, again, on behalf of the board, this is a tremendously important program for the blueberry industry going forward. So we can't thank you enough. These are the kinds of means to an important end of what we're trying to accomplish at USHBC. And I know what we're trying to accomplish you know, as an industry together, you know, trying to make blueberries the world's favorite fruit. And you guys are focused on making a world with better blueberries. All right. So I appreciate you guys. Is there anything else before I let you go that you want to share? I know this has been a, a great conversation. I, I, honestly, Oscar, you know, Court's right. You know, we're probably going to have to like further unpack Sequoia and bring you back with your Sequoia team and just talk about that program. And if our audience has questions, you know, help us prepare for that program. You, you want to know more about Sequoia, then we can certainly invite Oscar back and have him unpack some more of, of what that program represents. But I appreciate your time. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we let you go? I'll leave you with a reflection that both Court and I had uh, leaving Fruit Logistica, which is this, this huge produce fair that happens in Germany once a year. A lot of American producers go, actually people from all over the world. And to your mission uh, of the mission of the USHBC on, on making blueberries the world's favorite fruit, that was our reflection. Blueberries are moving up a notch or a magnitude. Um, when it comes to the produce industry. I came back into produce uh, seven years ago, and I reached out to a whole bunch of friends, you know, I've been in produce for many years in retail. So I reached out and I said, hey, you know, we're doing blueberries. And they said, oh, Oscar, you know, that's great, wonderful. You know, I'm worried about apples and citrus and bananas. And yeah, if you can fix a strawberry category, that's great. But blueberries, don't bother me, go away, go away. I saw a lot of these people again this year in Berlin, and I have to tell you, that's all they wanted to talk about is blueberries. So that's my takeaway. We've moved up the notch. Blueberries is in everybody's radar. And we do have a tremendous opportunity in front of us to, to go in this virtuous circle of, uh, you know, better blueberries that lead to not just trial, but also repeat and people staying in that category and growing it. Well, this has been fun. I appreciate you both for joining the show and uh, and sharing some of your insights, obviously some of your uh, vision for the future, and certainly the excitement, the shared excitement that we see for you know what what's yet ahead for Blueberry. So I appreciate your time, and, and we'll have you back. So again, thank you. Really appreciate it. Go Blueberry. Go Blueberries. All right. Well, that's it. What a great conversation. But that's episode 130. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on the Business of Blueberries. Go Blueberries!